What's up, everyone, and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DeCebedo, and we've got a bit of a different format for you this week because it's Climate Week in New York City, and we're going to take you through some ambitious and unambitious company carbon reduction plans, tell you what you should look out for and why, and give a bit of a roadmap for assessing climate proposals going forward. We're calling this episode Climate Palooza. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. Climate Week in New York City is an event that has taken place every year in New York since 2009. The summit is alongside the UN General Assembly and it brings together international leaders from business, government and civil society to showcase global climate action. And showcase is an operative word here because in 2021, leaders want to use anything they are doing to address the current climate crisis and shine it up for the people to admire. So pledges are made, promises are put out into the media, and an atmosphere of optimism pervades the city. But once those promises are made, then comes the hard part. Sorting through them, figuring out what is better, you know, being carbon neutral or going net zero. Are the plans that companies are putting forth ambitious enough to address the dire warnings put forth by the scientific community? You have to ask yourself these questions. Well, today we are going to go over some of these plans and provide a roadmap for how you should think about them. We are going to split this up into two episodes. This week we will focus on those sectors that are the most pollutive, energy, utilities, and cement, basically building materials. Next week, we will focus on those that are most pervasive in our society, banking and technology. So let's start off with energy. And to do this, we want to talk about oil and gas companies. And I called up my colleague, Antonios Panagiotopoulos, and he focused on Royal Dutch Shell, the oil and gas major that actually has made an ambitious climate plan. First off, uh, Shell has um, introduced uh, a multiple, if you like, layer target, uh, starting from short term to medium term and to a longer term target ending in 2050. Now, besides that, um, and this is a sign of the comprehensiveness of the target and whether uh, how we uh, assess the comprehensiveness, at least, uh, Shell is targeting its whole footprint. So beyond the operational scope one and two emissions it's also targeting scope three emissions and particularly the biggest chunk of uh, its current footprint which is the um, the product use so scope three category 11. so that means that the company in a way it communicates to investors and to the general public that it's thinking or at least it's planning to change its product So that's why Shell's ambitions are so important here. They've kind of set the gold standard. They said they're going to deal with their scope 3 emissions. And the reason that's so important is because Shell's scope 3 emissions accounts for around 90% of its overall emissions. Those are the indirect emissions scope 3 is, not operational emissions. Those are scope 1 and 2. Now, a majority of oil and gas companies have most of their emissions within their scope 3 category. And some are actually dealing with this and some aren't. European oil companies, for example, are more apt to add their scope 3 emissions to their carbon reduction plans, while American companies are falling behind. So if you see an oil and gas major that doesn't have scope 3 emissions in its plans, then I would call that an unambitious plan. But let's get to the details of what Shell is actually going to do to cut its emissions. To cut down your scope 1 and 2 emissions, like first of all, you need to introduce more 
uh, measures to increase your efficiency. And then the residual emissions, you need to uh, potentially either use uh, uh, carbon capture and sequestration or offset those those volumes. Um, now, um, uh, Shell's plan at the moment is to reduce uh, oil, uh, which has higher carbon intensity, increase the production of gas, so therefore uh, lower uh, the carbon intensity of their products, and also invest uh, in wind and solar. And beyond that, Shell is also looking, uh, we, ha we have seen that actually in the UK, where they're buying more charging points. So uh, at least based on Shell's um, uh, strategy, they want to offer consumers all the modes of energy that are available. And then obviously, if society chooses to go to electricity, then they should be in a good position to take advantage of that switch. So do you hear that Shell is moving away from oil and trying to regain itself as the leader of the electron in all its forms? There's one caveat to this. They're likely going to need carbon offsets to truly hit their goals. And offsets are a whole other factor to watch out for with these climate plans. Offsets are the purchase or use of carbon negative technology to net out a company's emissions. Basically, this is the meaning of net zero, and it's a tricky beast to tame. I'll give you one example why. A lot of offsets can be called natural offsets. They're nature-based solutions, like saving a forest from being cut down. And a company can say, look, we saved this big forest from being cut down. But in reality, the forest was never at risk of being cut down. The company just kind of took advantage of something that people weren't paying attention to. I don't want to disparage offsets, though. They're extremely important for us to meet our climate goals, for everyone on the globe to meet their climate goals. I just want to let you know that if you see a company that is is relying heavily on offsets that you should be wary of the promises they make with them. They require a second look. Okay, now on to the utility sector, the industry that moves the energy to you and me. For this, I called up two of my colleagues, Matthew Lee and Elchin Mamadov. First, Matthew told me about a climate plan for one of the largest power and gas companies in the U.S. called American Electric Power, also called AEP. And then Elshin told me about an important factor to watch out for for the highly regulated utility sector, politics. So here's Matthew first on AEP's plans. So they're one of the top five utilities in America in terms of market capitalization. And in March of this year, they updated their target to be, I quote, net zero carbon emissions by 2050 um, with an interim target of 80% emissions reductions from 2000 levels by 2030. And actually, uh, last year in 2020, their total scope one emissions were uh, reported to be around 49 million tons of CO2 equivalent, which is already 70% of an emissions reduction when you compare it to their two year 2000 total, about 169 million tons. So when I look at that and the interim goal of 80% um, from a feasibility perspective, uh, they've still got about 70, 80% of their fuel mix from natural gas and coal. So there's about 17,000 megawatts of capacity they have to phase out to hit that goal by 2030. And I think the real challenge is going to be in the longer term, how are they going to replace all of that capacity uh, to hit net zero by 2050. And I think that gets to the language you keep hearing um, in the utility circle. About 20 or so have announced over the last two years some form of a net zero goal. I want to sum some of the things Matthew just said there for clarity. The first is the goal by 2030 that Matthew said AEP was close to achieving but not there yet. AEP will likely have to shut down its coal-fired power plants in the coming decade if they want to meet their plan. 
The question that Matthew poses is what other types of fuel will be used to replace coal? At the moment, if I were a betting man, I'd probably say that it's natural gas, but who knows what will happen in the coming years with renewables. The second thing I want to point out is that this plan is all about scope one. Scope one emissions are the emissions from the company's operations. They are the carbon AEP emits in order to create energy that we all use to power our world. There are two things missing from that plan. Scope 2 emissions, which are actually the generation of electricity, AEP's main business. And so, as Matthew noted, AEP uses about 20% of its energy it creates to power its own systems. But leaving out Scope 2 isn't really a big deal for a utility. The bigger deal is that their plan is missing scope 3 emissions. And you always want to see scope 3 emissions noted in any company's climate plan. I've said this before. Scope 3 is so important, I'll even make a rhyme for it. Without accounting for scope 3, your plan is a catastrophe. The reason scope 3 was left out of AE's plan is unknown. But without it, by our measurement, AEP's carbon plan puts them at a level of reduction that would be consistent with a 3.7 degrees Celsius rise in temperature, not a 2 degrees Celsius rise in temperature like the Paris Accord would have liked. And it's not like there are no utilities out there that aren't putting scope 1, 2, and 3 in their climate plan. Sempra, for example, a peer of AEP's, has all three scopes in its plan. And Sempra actually operates a more complex utility system. So I wanted Matthew to compare the two. I thought it would be useful to hear about what AEP's plan is to decarbonize versus what SEMPRA's plan is to decarbonize. AEP only has scope one, SEMPRA has scope one, two, and three. So I asked Matthew to kind of take me through both of their plans, what they would likely do so we could see some comparison and start to understand why one seems a bit more ambitious than the other. AEP has more generation uh, assets and specifically still has a decent amount of coal generation compared to Sempra. So that's why it's a direct scope one emission they're looking to reduce there. And um, they have published a couple of scenarios where they phase out coal plants. And so that's likely the route they would go. It's just a matter of when and how quickly they would phase out their coal plants to reduce those scope one emissions. Uh, Sempra on the other end, uh, so they're they have much more transmission and uh, distribution assets with natural gas. Um, so their improvements to cut emissions would be things like digitizing um, some of their systems that make decisions on how to allocate electricity, incorporating more uh, battery storage uh, when and microgrids uh, in the short term. And in the longer term, they're thinking of scaling up some green hydrogen and carbon capture and storage. Although. Again, that, that I think a lot of that technology needs to demonstrate that it can come to market. And that market might be buoyed by what is happening with regulations at the moment. Decarbonizing the utility industry in the U.S. particularly might have some wind in its sails if the Clean Energy Payment Program is passed by the Senate. Dubbed the CEPP, it is important for the utility industry because utilities are heavily regulated, more so than other industries, especially in the U.S. And so here's where I called up Elshin to come in to give us the details of what CEPP is all about. Because it could also be a benefit for European utilities that are making their way into the U.S. market. Basically, it encourages utilities to uh, build up their renewable portfolio and clean up their act, basically. And um, for those that don't do it 
they get penalized. For those that are more proactive than the industry uh, and than the government expected, they're being rewarded for it in terms of tariffs and whatnot. And that provides opportunity for not only U.S. utilities, but also for European utilities that are already expanding into U.S., especially East Coast, when it comes to building offshore wind farms. So in theory, the the more ambitious, the if the CEPP uh, plan goes ahead, which is a big if, then it could potentially unlock much more investment from the European utilities. And that's also good for US peers as well, because what, what happens then is they often partner up. So the likes of um, uh, Eversource, for example, they, they have a joint venture with uh, Orsted, which is a Danish utility, another US uh, local um, utility, uh, Dominion and PSEG. They also have a partnerships with Orsted. Um, Iberdrola's US-listed uh, subsidiary Avangrid is also very active in deploying this offshore wind project. And all those companies are going to get a boost from the CEPP if it's passed. But the one problem with that is, even if this is passed and the money's allocated and everything you know comes to fruition, there's still the problem of the state. The state has a lot of control as to what can be built and how it's built. A utility can have an ambitious decarbonization plan that runs afoul of a curmudgeon state governor, for example. So now, of the big three polluting industries, I left the most complicated for last. Cement. The cement industry is one of the hidden polluters in our society. Cement is everywhere. It is needed to build a lot of the low-carbon systems we hope to use, and it is hard to cut its emissions because they are heavily embedded in the chemical structure of cement itself. Still, plans are being made to try and lower the industry's emissions, especially during Climate Week. And so to hear about them, I called up my colleague, Morin Ellis, and he started off by telling me what to pay attention to when a cement company comes out and issues a climate edict. So companies that are targeting um, absolute emission reduction, but also targeting a cement production-based emission reduction, are the companies that um, have the better carbon reduction targets. So the ambitious target that you know, I'm talking about today is from a, a company um, called CRH. And they're a diversified construction materials company that has a significant amount of cement production as well. So they have set uh, a net zero target um, by 2050. And they've set that as an absolute carbon emissions target, where a lot of companies in the industry set um, intensity targets, which you know, is hard to get down to zero because you're basing that on a revenue or production. But CRH is doing that absolute emissions across its um, operations by 2050. And as we all know, the net zero target is good, but 2050 is still a long way away. So being able to show how they can get to that is what um, makes these targets stand out as being not just ambitious, but also achievable. So CRH also has the, you know, an interim target for 2030 um, as a way to get there. So CRH has a target to reduce its absolute emissions. That's much better than just saying it's going to reduce its emissions intensity, which is relative to a monetary 
goal. They have a target that is incremental and thus achievable, but the problem is you don't hear Morgan mention Scope 3, do you? You didn't even hear him mention Scope 2. CRH's plan only involves Scope 1 emissions or the emissions that occur from sources that are controlled or owned by an organization, like the rotating kiln that actually makes cement itself. CRH reports its emissions by Scope 1, 2, and 3, and Scope 1, the actual making of cement again, accounts for more than 50% of them. But Scope 3 accounts for around 45%. So them not having that in their plan is kind of a problem. Another concern is CRH is a bit vague on the details of their plan. They say they want to reduce their carbon emissions by 33% by 2030, yes, but they don't give many specifics on how they're going to do that. They say things like, we are developing innovative products and enhancing our material strength. But what does that mean in detail? I asked Morgan. There, there are a couple of different um, points that they can do to knock off the low-hanging fruit to get to these interim targets. Um, stuff around energy efficiency on the manufacturing plant, um, substituting um, fossil fuels for renewable electricity sources, um, as well. And then there are things like reducing the amount of Portland cement that they use, reducing the, the clinker factor, um, and increasing the use of alternative materials. But there are also, you know, some some things that technologies that they need to commercialize um the industry needs to get beyond the r&d stages and and commercialize and some of these um technologies like carbon capture and storage use use of alternative cement, um cement materials and also negative cements um are, are things that are coming in that you know technologies that are good at research stages to you know absorb cement as cement is curing, absorb CO2 as the cement is curing, um, and, and things like that. So there's technologies that can get them there. They just need to commercialize them and, and produce them at scale. So it seems that unlike the energy industry and the utility industry, the cement industry still has longer to go to develop new products that will allow companies in the sector to cut their emissions at the rate necessary to hit our climate goals. What's been most interesting about this conversation for me is that Shell, Royal Dutch Shell, is really the only company we talked about today, aside from Sempra, the utility company Matthew mentioned, that is cutting its scope three emissions. Maybe investor and community pressure does work in forcing companies to develop a robust decarbonization policy. And that is sort of what Climate Week is all about. It's a chance for stakeholders to voice their concerns to business leaders and the like, and to let them know they might not agree with how slowly we are decarbonizing our society. But in our minds, the only way to do that well is to understand the nuts and bolts of some very ambitious, but also some very pollutive industries climate plan. So I hope today this episode kind of gave you some more information and armed you with the tools to be able to look at these climate plans that are put forth into our world and to have a discerning eye when you see a company throw out a flashy sustainability report at you. And that's it for the week. I want to thank Antonios and Matthew and Elshin and Morgan for talking to me about the news with an ESG twist. I want to thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to tune in next week where we have part two where we talk about the same thing we did this week, but just about banks and technology companies. They're very, very important because they're very pervasive in our society. So you'll want to tune in for that. But if you like what you heard today, don't forget to rate and review us. And of course, subscribe. That always helps. Thanks again and talk to you soon.
The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.